Well, good morning. The book of Acts. So here we go. And I'm very much looking forward to walking through this book together as a church over the next several months. Something that has struck me recently is the reality of how quickly things around us can change. Think with me about the rapid pace of change in four areas. First, technology. Think simply about this device, the smartphone, and its incredible technological power. Think about what access we have through this device to old and new relationships, to news and information, through social media apps like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. I don't even know what TikTok is. I just threw that in there because it seemed like it fit with the others. But I'm already that old guy who is out of touch. Things are moving so rapidly. Think about how you can watch movies and TV shows and sports streaming on demand right here at any time. Think about how Amazon, right? You can make an order for anything that you can afford on Amazon and your Amazon account is tied to your credit card so that it's literally a tap of your screen and you can buy whatever you want and have it delivered to your door oftentimes next day. In fact, you could probably make an order on Amazon right now and it will likely be on your doorstep when you get home after lunch. Amazing. Think about how you can ask a machine, and I won't say her name right now or she'll respond to me, um, (laughs) nearby restaurants, and then have this machine get you directions to that restaurant, and if you have the right car, it will drive you by itself to said restaurant. Think about how you can have FaceTime conversations with someone who lives almost anywhere on planet Earth right now via this device. And a lot of these technology developments aren't bad. They can be used for good purposes. But most, if not all of these things that I've mentioned have been created or at least massively developed, hear this, in the last five to 10 years. Not 100 to 200 years so that we can kind of gradually absorb its effect on our lives. Five to 10 years, this rapid pace of change and and changing the way that we understand and live our lives. And this this rapid change can ironically make us feel disconnected and discontent and unsettled. Second, the fast pace of change in terms of sexual and identity ethics. And I'll just say that as of the last few years, those who hold to traditional biblical ethics around sexuality and identity are feeling increasingly on the outside. Like strange, old-fashioned, irrelevant people that don't belong. And even as we aim, and we must aim, to be as gentle and kind and meek and loving and welcoming as possible, this very recent change in our culture means that we'll be seen as people with bigoted and unloving views. Third, think about personal health. In January, 
of 2020, right, this was just two years ago, not many people had really thought about the word, you know what I'm going to say, coronavirus. And now it's a household word, COVID-19. I was, as I was writing this sermon, I looked up, this happened, and there was a, a drawing from a friend of one of my kids on my desk, and it was a drawing that had a sign on it, and the sign said, beware coronavirus. And then there was a roll of toilet paper drawn on this sign. Remember that? The mad rush for toilet paper? But this rapid change in terms of this mysterious virus that is spread throughout the whole world. And how quickly people's lives were dramatically changed, an alteration on our outlook on life in the world. And some of you this morning have lost a loved one due to this virus. Our lives are changed. And in such a short period of time, fourth international peace, how quickly, I mean, think about, think about how quickly our world has gone from seeming peace between the powerhouse nations to conflict and serious worldwide conflict. It's all happening so quickly. And, and all of this change leaves us with a sense of vertigo, this swirling, almost tornado-like um, change with events and, and changes. And it can feel just dizzying. Like, what's going on? And so we're starting a series on the book of Acts at just the right time, aren't we? Because the book of Acts is such a stabilizing book for us Christians. So maybe you look around you and because of the events in your life or the events going on in the world, you feel, this morning you feel scared. Or you feel deeply troubled. Or you feel timid and anxious. Or you feel there's so, so much uncertainty and so much that you lack confidence in and so much that you feel like it's hard to trust even anyone, and you feel that this morning. Or perhaps you feel like you're so insignificant and small compared to the big things going on around you that you feel like you could never make a real difference. Or maybe you feel like Christians today, the church today, is being so ostracized and pushed aside that how are we Christians even going to make it to the next generation? Or maybe you feel like a fish that's swimming against the current of the culture and the rest of the school is going with the culture and you feel this, this deep sense of being alone. Well, Acts was written for Christians who felt exactly these ways. It was written for Christians who felt doubtful, who felt afraid, who felt uncertain, who felt insignificant, who felt unimportant. It, in other words, it was written for Christians just like you and just like me. And it was written to give us confidence, not in ourselves. See, the book of Acts isn't a pep talk like, hey, go out there and you can, you can really do it on your own strength and, and just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you'll be okay. It, Acts is not a self-help book. 
No, Acts was written to give us conviction way deep down in our souls that Jesus is the living king and that this reality changes everything. So let's pray, commit this series to the Lord, and then we'll jump in to Acts 1, 1 through 8. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this powerful book of Acts. Teach us, change us as we study it. And we pray in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you could turn in your Bibles. Actually, you could turn to Luke chapter 1 for now. And just a bit of background information as we get started. We know from history that a man named Luke was a physician and a close companion of the Apostle Paul. And he wrote a two-volume work. He actually, did you know this? Luke wrote more material than anyone else, than any of the other New Testament writers. And he wrote a two-volume work. The first volume is the Gospel of Luke. Volume number two is the book of Acts. And we'll be studying the book of Acts together. And it's instructive to read the very beginning of Luke to get an idea of why he's writing both Luke and Acts. So let's read in Luke 1, starting at verses 1 through 2. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. This is from the ESV, by the way. Verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Let's stop there. So Luke is adding his voice to a chorus of voices that have told about the things that God has done in the world through Jesus. So he, he says, many wrote narratives. If you can imagine it, put yourself back there, back then 2,000 years ago. Many are writing narratives. But then specifically, look at verse 2, there are these eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, mainly the apostles, who told others what Jesus did and taught. They spread the stories about Jesus. And that's what Luke does here. He's, he's writing his story of the life of Jesus. So let's keep reading in verse 3 of Luke 1. It says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke's purpose is to write what he calls an orderly account, a really careful account of the events of Jesus. And he's writing to one individual, a man named Theophilus. And we don't know much about this Theophilus, but what we do know is why Luke is writing to Theophilus. So here's the goal. Ready for it? Here's the goal of both, both Luke and Acts. It's one word. Find it there in verse 4. It's this word certainty. Certainty for Theophilus. Certainty. In other words, all of this happened as recorded. It's all real. Jesus really did live a perfect life. Jesus really did perform miracles for the sick and blind and lame. Jesus really did die as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus really did rise from the dead. Jesus really did ascend into heaven. And Jesus really is alive and at work today. It's all real. 
Christian, you can have certainty about these things. Now, many of us have probably struggled with doubt in our lives as Christians over these things. And, and uh, the fact is, the Bible is not shy when it comes to talking about our doubts. In fact, the Gospels plainly tell us that the disciples who saw, they saw Jesus die, and then they saw him after he rose from the dead, even these men had doubts about it all. So we should bring our doubts and fears and timidity and uncertainty to the Lord in prayer for his help to believe with greater conviction and depth. See, Jesus is no stranger to dealing with people who have doubts. He knows how to help us in the midst of our doubts and fears. And here's the thing. Because Luke's account, when he wrote it, was inspired by the Holy Spirit, when we read the book of Acts, the Spirit testifies within our hearts to the reality of all this stuff that's written about. And so here's my first point of application. Will you read on your own through the book of Acts as we study it together as a church? Will you consider setting aside special time to devote yourself to this book of Acts as we study it as a church? Maybe you're not a Christian, but you're here this morning, you're exploring Christianity, a friend brought you maybe, and you're just checking things out. You're curious about Jesus and what all of this Christianity and Bible stuff is all about. Can I encourage you to simply take one step, and, and this is the step, read through the book of Acts and pray that God would work in your heart as you read it and see what he does. But for all of us to dispel doubts and to grow in our conviction of the reality, not only of what Jesus has done for us in the past, but also that he is continuing to be at work in our lives today. And the fact that he's continuing to be at work even after his resurrection and ascension is what Acts 1 is all about. So let's turn our Bibles forward to Acts chapter 1. Acts 1. And I'll read verses 1 through 2. It says this, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now I want you to keep looking at your Bible. I want you to notice one key word in these first two verses of Acts. And the word is began. You see that word there? Began. That is a key word in these opening verses of Acts. The word began. See, the Gospel of Luke, which records the life and death and resurrection of Christ, is only the beginning. Track with me here. The implication is that Jesus is still doing and teaching even after his resurrection and ascension. In other words, Jesus is still at work 
today, actively at work. The big change is where he is located. As Lord over all the earth, who has ascended into heaven now, Jesus is carrying out his rule from heaven as he sends out his spirit and his word. So people have debated, hey, what should the, what should the fuller title of the book of Acts be? And I have here in my Bible, it says the Acts of the Apostles. Is that the best way to give a more full title to the book of Acts? Or should it be the Acts of the Holy Spirit? And certainly in the book of Acts, the apostles are very active. The Holy Spirit is very active. But I think from the first verse of Acts 1 that the best way to title this book is like this. The Acts of the Risen and Ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And the entire book of Acts, as we read it, spells out the work that Jesus is doing from heaven. And here's how he's working primarily. He's working through his people's verbal witness, through proclamation of the gospel. So we're forced to ask right at the beginning of Acts, what is the message they're proclaiming? What is The gospel. And to answer that question, I want to go back to Luke, to the end of Luke chapter 24. So turn there with me. And Luke 24 and Acts 1 are closely connected. Let me read Luke 24, 36 through 49. And you listen for what the message is that the apostles have been given. Luke 24, starting at verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus commissions His disciples, primarily with a speaking ministry, a word ministry, a proclamation ministry. And he not only charges them to be witnesses and says, okay, go out and witness now. He gives them very clearly the message that they are to speak about. And it has three parts according to verses 46 and 47 of Luke 24. Let's talk about these. First, what is the gospel message? First, it is that the Christ suffered and died. Now, why did Jesus suffer and die? 1 Corinthians 15:3 explains that Christ died with a specific purpose. He died for our sins. He died in our place, taking the punishment that we deserved for our sins 
while he hung on that cross during those hours. Second part of the gospel is that Jesus rose from the dead. Shai Lin has a song that includes some of these lyrics. He says, Elvis is dead. Picasso is dead. Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin are dead. Marilyn Monroe is dead. Brando is dead. James Brown is dead. Princess Di and John Lennon are dead. Plato is dead. Socrates is dead. Aristotle and Immanuel Kant are dead. Nietzsche and Darwin are dead. Buddha, he's dead. Muhammad is dead. Gandhi and Hale Selassie are dead. Nero is dead. Constantine is dead. Genghis Khan and Attila the Hun are dead. Alexander the Great is dead. Napoleon is dead. Saddam Hussein is dead. Pharaoh is dead. Cyrus is dead. Darius and Sennacherib are dead. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. Caesar is dead. Herod is dead. Annas, Caiaphas, and Judas are dead. Pontius Pilate is dead. Their bodies and bones are in graves. However, Jesus is alive. And we worship him. And can I add that the rulers of this world will very soon also be dead and our king lives. That is good news. The third part of the gospel is that there is forgiveness of sins in Jesus and in him alone. See, you and I, the hard news is that the reality is that you and I have sinned against God and this is a big deal with big consequences, even eternal consequences. But your sins, Christian, all of your sins, past, present, and future, maybe you've had a terrible week and you've just fallen away from God. And can I remind you this morning, this is, this is the main part of what church is all about, your sins are forgiven completely in Jesus. Not because of anything you've done, not because of anything you've contributed, it's in his name, in the name of Christ, that all of our sins are washed clean. So do you want your sins forgiven today? Trust in the Savior who died for them and who then rose from the dead, the only Savior. His name is Jesus. So this is the good news that we cherish and that we have been called to proclaim Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is alive and he gives us forgiveness. But note that Jesus, look there later in verses 48 through 49. Jesus doesn't say, all right, disciples, you've got the message. Now go and tell the world. In fact, he says just the opposite. He says, sit down. <laughs> he says, don't move. He says, stay in Jerusalem. And why does he say this? He says this because they're not ready to go out and witness yet. Now, why is that the case? Why does he say, stay put in Jerusalem? It's because they need what Jesus calls power from on high. So he's saying, you're not ready yet, Peter. You're not ready yet, John. You're not ready yet, disciples. You need to wait until you receive power from on high. So let's go back to Acts chapter one to learn more about this power from on high. Acts chapter one. And I'll read verse three to get us started. 
He presented, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So again, what Jesus shows his disciples is that he really rose from the dead. What he says to his disciples is that he's king over all the earth. And so putting these together, this is such a huge point of the whole book of Acts, is that Jesus is the living king. The living king. And he wants his followers to be deeply convinced of this. So maybe you feel today like this world is just crazy, spinning out of control. And maybe you feel scared. You feel upset. You feel terrified. You feel anxious. And you don't know what to do. And maybe even sometimes you feel like asking, Lord, where are you? Are you there? Are you on your throne? Are you at work? Are you alive? And the book of Acts proclaims to us loud and clear, yes, Jesus is alive. Yes, Jesus is on his throne. Yes, Jesus is at work. And yes, he's at work even through us, even when it doesn't feel like it to accomplish his plan on earth. Now, how is the Lord Jesus at work? Well, let's keep reading, starting in verse 4. It says, While Staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Um, as a family, we often will read our, uh, the Bible around the dinner table together. And what I say to my kids sometimes is, listen for repeated words. So I ask you, what is the repeated word or idea in Acts 1, 4 through 8? Here it is. The Holy Spirit, repeated three times. Look at it there. First, verse 4, Jesus orders his disciples not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father is this great gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, secondly, Jesus has told the apostles in advance that they'd be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And don't get tripped up with this baptism language. It just basically means being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it results in courageous witness and willingness to suffer and miraculous works in the book of Acts. Third, Jesus explains that the apostles will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them in verse 8. So these, these common, later on in the book of Acts, is a real compliment, right? They're called common, uneducated men, the apostles. So these are just your... You're blue-collar fishermen, and they're about to turn the world around because they receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And this should make us ordinary people excited to rely on the Spirit and then to open our mouths for Jesus because it depends on the power of the Spirit. I've already heard some incredible stories about gospel witness in Ukraine, and maybe you have too. Christians doing just amazing things at the risk of their lives to show and tell the love of Christ. And here's, 
Here's what's happening in Ukraine right now. Here's what's really happening in Ukraine. Jesus is sending his spirit to fill the hearts and mouths of Ukrainian Christians so that they go and joyfully tell their suffering and scared neighbors about the hope that is found in Jesus alone. That is happening in Ukraine right now. And Ukrainians are responding to this. King Jesus is on the move in Ukraine today. He's working through his spirit and his church, even in the midst of the most hopeless and painful circumstances. You've seen the pictures. You've read the news. You know how hopeless it is in Ukraine right now. And you also know, Christian, that Jesus is Lord. And that he is at work even there, even right now. I love the Holy Spirit. I've been a Christian for around 20 years. And I've come to increasingly treasure the person of the Holy Spirit. But maybe you read, look at Acts 1-8 again. Maybe you read that verse about receiving the Spirit's power. And you kind of ask, well, did I receive the power of the Spirit when I first became a Christian, or do I need to receive the power of the Spirit again? And the answer that the book of Acts gives to that question is yes. Okay. Yes, whenever someone is united to Christ by faith, whether that's at five years old or 55 or 95, he or she receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit will never leave you, Christian. He is a friend and a help and a comfort who will never go away. And he lives within you. And yes, we learn from Acts that Christians can and should be repeatedly filled with the Holy Spirit. If you just turn over a couple pages to Acts 4.31, you'll see evidence of this. Not that we lose the Spirit and then regain him or lose our salvation and then regain it. But we're empowered afresh by his presence in our lives and ministry for ministry and mission over and over and over again. So I believe, here's the therefore for our church. I believe that as a church, we should be seeking the Lord regularly for a filling and new empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps in our lives we become dry. Maybe we've even grieved the Holy Spirit through habitual sin. Maybe we've become really captivated by what this world has to offer and we've become cold to Christ and we need a fresh joy, a fresh passion, a fresh repentance, a fresh love for the Lord and for his people. And this comes as we pray for and seek the outpouring of God's spirit upon us individually and as a church. Will you, Christian, at New Covenant Bible Church in the 21st century, as we go through the book of Acts, will you commit to praying that God would send his spirit in a fresh way? Pray for that. Ask the Lord for this as we go through this book of Acts together. Now, what happens when God's people are filled with God's spirit? Here's what happens. We long for the great commission to be fulfilled. 
In other words, we'll want the gospel to reach not just our neighbors, but the nations, not just our family members, but the farthest corners of the earth. And, and we see this missionary motivation and zeal in the book of Acts. Think about the apostle Paul. He will not be comfortable until the gospel has reached the ends of the earth. So it starts in Jerusalem. And we see that the nation of Israel in Jerusalem is kind of brought back to life as the gospel about Jesus comes to the Israelites in Jerusalem. And then there's persecution and the disciples are scattered to Samaria and to Judea, these outlying areas. And then the gospel goes even further beyond that, often through persecution and hardship, through the Apostle Paul. Think about the book of Acts and the Apostle Paul and his three missionary journeys. And then he's in prison, but he's still moving, moving, moving toward Rome. And so at the very end of the book of Acts, the gospel has reached the end and epicenter of the known world, which is Rome. But the book of Acts ends actually at a beginning because the apostle Paul's in prison, but he's speaking about the kingdom of God. And so there's this idea that the gospel needs to keep reaching out beyond Rome to the ends of the earth. And we're left with this sense that the mission must continue and continue it has. Isn't it remarkable that from this ragtag bunch of 12, 12 men and before them, this, this Nazarite carpenter, then 12 men filled with the spirit. And now Jesus is worshiped in Chicago, Illinois. How did that happen? And in the Fox Valley, we're worshiping Jesus in the Fox Valley, the ends of the earth. And Jesus is worshiped today from the cities of New York to the farmlands of the Midwest, to the mountains of Colorado and Montana, which I've never visited but want to, to the coastlands of California. Jesus has been received and worshiped all throughout the United States, and he's received and believed and loved and worshiped on every continent on planet Earth. Amazing. The ends of the earth, and yet the mission isn't complete yet. See, there are people in our neighborhoods who need to take that next step toward Christ. And this time of tumult and rapid change in our world is not the time to merely congregate and cloister as Christians. We need to do that, but we also need to go out and through our words and actions and by the power of God's spirit, reach out to people who are asking questions. And aren't people asking questions today? Aren't people scared and troubled and asking questions? And don't we have in our minds and in our hearts the best answer, Jesus. We do. And so we're called to joyfully bring this message through our words and deeds to our neighbors, but perhaps even more pressingly and more deeply on the heart of God as we finish here. There, I said in first service, there are hundreds of unreached people groups um, on planet Earth right now. And I was corrected after first service. Someone pulled up a website and said, actually, it's thousands, thousands of unreached people groups. Now, what this means is that literally millions of people 
right now have no, zero access to hear the saving message about Jesus. None. And as you hear that, and as I hear that, I believe this fact, this reality, should light a fire in every one of us to think about how we can wisely get involved with the mission of God to bring his gospel to the ends of the earth. So don't think about the person sitting next to you or New Covenant Bible Church, you as an individual. I want to leave us with this question. How can you take part in Jesus' mission to reach the unreached? You know, when you come to the end of your life and you look back, and we're all going to have time that we think back on that was wasted time or regrets, but I can guarantee you that if you give yourself to this cause, to this purpose, on your deathbed, this will not be a regret. And so as we, as we work our way through the book of Acts as a church, let's pray to the Lord that he would really light that that fire, that passion within our hearts to step into the mission that he is doing for the glory of his son in this world. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, these are, these are big realities. These are big truths. And we are weak and needy people and so we uh, confess that we need you. And we need your spirit. And so we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can have the joy and the privilege of taking part with you in what you're doing in the world. Help us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.